sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. 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 Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University. I'm joined this week by both Ken Katkin and Michael Baranowski, a professor of law at Chase Law School and a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University, respectively. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Hey, it's great to be back. Yeah, nice, nice to be here in sort of a third wheel capacity. I'm, I'm looking forward to it, and uh, I appreciate you letting me kind of jump in right here at the beginning for just a couple quick administrative things. One is actually a plug tray for my newish podcast, Politics Makes Me Sick. It comes out on Fridays, and in my latest episode, I talk about why nobody is stealing this election. What's going to happen between now and January 20th when Joe Biden will be inaugurated? Why the media is both sick and manipulative? And what I do to try to keep sane and the prop, the big problem, I think, that Democrats have with white voters. And then at the end, I kind of wind it all up by suggesting that I should start a third party. And so it's there's a, lot, yeah, a lot going on. I'm looking for a name. And but anyway, uh, so if you want to check that out, you can find it at politicsmakesmesick.com or wherever you get wherever app you get your podcast. And we'll also put that in the show notes for today. And finally, I'd like to thank our newest sustaining supporters on Patreon, Daniel. Jack, Tony, Jay, Scott, Adam, Kevin, and Jeff. Uh, it was a good week so for us, and we really appreciate your support. Tony wrote in to say, I've been listening to you guys' podcast for a few months now, and I just love how civil you guys have been through all the toxicity out there. Thanks for what you guys do and having rational discussions. And Kevin wrote, I just recently discovered the podcast and absolutely love it. Thanks for putting this podcast out there. We need to get everyone listening to this. And I, I know we all certainly agree with that and we appreciate it. And of course, as a Patreon supporter, you not only get that second full length episode every week, you also get ad free versions of all of our shows as well as other things at various levels of support. And to check it all out, just go to politicsguys.com slash support and you'll find again a link in the show notes. And as always, if you can't afford to support the show, but you would like all that bonus content, just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I am happy to get you set up. And with that administrative stuff out of the way, uh, Trey, I'm just going to pass it right over to you. Well, I appreciate that. And I have to admit, I'm a little bit excited. I'm wondering, I mean, you know, we do things for certain level of supporters. So what's the level of support to get to name your party? <laughs> yeah, that, that is to be determined. But yeah, we can, we, we can certainly do that. A branding opportunity is available here, as they say in the business world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I just feel like, I mean, it needs to be big. I just don't, you know, but it can't be too big. I, I want to think... <laughs> Um, uh, I love that. I love that. Well, I think what we were going to start off with this week was uh, taking a look at Kelly Loeffler uh, and David Perdue, because specifically uh, Ken and Mike, uh, you know, this is going to be the tipping point in the uh, in the in the holding of the Senate. And I know that there's a lot of attention being played on what's happening and the maturations taking place uh, in, in the Trump side. And, and uh, Mike, you're kind of talking about that a little bit for your podcast. But I think probably the bigger deal for the next uh, few years is going to be who controls the Senate, even if it's that slim majority. And so what I want to kind of start off things with is asking each of you, which way do you think it lands down in Georgia? Boy, um, it's very hard for me to give a prediction because it's obviously going to be so close. But um, maybe I'll talk instead of I'll duck your question about make a prediction. But I'll talk about <laughs> I'll talk about what factors I think might influence that outcome. But I can't really predict which way they're going to go um, within the with, I think within the Dems and within the Republicans. Here's what I'd be watching for um, within the within the Dem electorate. I think it's going to be if, if the Dems are going to win these Senate seats, it's going to be necessary for them to hold together um, essentially the, the whole coalition that Biden put together in the presidential of uh, progressives and moderates that they're they're all going to have to think it's it's very important to turn out and vote in these elections. And if there's if there's any drop off in um, excitement in either of those two groups, it's going to be very hard uh, for the Dems to win. 
Um, on the other hand, I think on the Republican side, and I think this may be an explanation of some of what we're seeing um, with, with Trump's refusal to concede and with the Senate Republicans kind of going along with that for now. Um, on the Republican side, even though Trump is not going to be on this ballot, it's just a Senate race. Uh, if the Trumpers don't turn out, then the, 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 the Republicans are done, I think. So I think they really they really need to um, keep the, the, the people who vote for Trump, but who aren't necessarily traditional Republicans, um, engaged as well as the traditional Republicans, uh, or else if, if, if the Republicans can't turn out both of those groups, I think the Dems have won. So, um, so, so I do think it's going to be a turnout based election and that turnout on both sides is going to depend on how well, uh, coalitions can be held together. Let me ask you a follow up on that, because so, so far, uh, the GOP, uh, both candidates have spent approximately just a scooch over two million dollars on the race. Uh, and at this juncture, none, uh, no other candidates have spent any rate money post race. So in other words, this is money that's been spent since Election Day till today. And, you know, that's one of the things in our big multi-host show that we had talked about a little bit in the case of the Lindsey Graham race was lots of money spent, but you still kind of ended up with the same effect. Do you think money might play into this one? And, And secondly, you talk about the coalition and the Trumpers. The fact that this is that the runoff isn't going to occur until January. Do you think this gives Democrats a one up if Trump, you know, inevitably is not going to be inaugurated and therefore this lets some of the air out? Or does that impassion the the Trump base to say, like, we have to hold the line because otherwise they're going to steal it from us? Do Do you see any of that playing out in that timing of it being in January? And what about the numbers that we're already seeing reported again, two million since Election Day? Uh, for both uh, Republican candidates, Lafayette and Purdue. Let me take the second question first about the role of a Trump concession, and then I'll go back to the first question about money. Um, so I, I think that um, the, the Republican Senate candidates, Loeffler and Purdue, will benefit um, if, if Trump keeps insisting that the election was stolen. And, and in fact, I think that that's the reason why um, so many Senate Republicans, congressional Republicans, um, are not really criticizing uh, Trump for doing that right now because I think I think um, Trump's constituency uh, in Georgia is more likely to turn out in January if they still feel very very aggrieved and feel that the presidential was stolen from Trump um, than if they actually um, uh, get depressed by the fact that Trump was uh, legitimately defeated. So so I, I do think that that's that that those things are related and that. And I, th- I expect Trump to never concede, to continue to um, say that the whole thing was robbed, that that will still be his stance even on January. When, when's the election? The 5th or the 6th of January? Um, the, the Georgia runoff? I think it's the, the 5th. It's, a, it's the 5th. Yeah. So I think even on the 5th, um, which will be the day before, actually, the electoral votes are counted in Congress, um, he probably still won't have conceded or if, or if, if, if it's obvious that the electoral count is going to go against him. He'll just keep insisting that it was um, uh, uh, stolen and that they, that will maximize the turnout in Georgia among his base. Now, on the question of money, um, I look at that question in a kind of unique way in Georgia compared to how we look at it normally, because I think um, in Georgia for this runoff, you've got um, the major media market, which is expensive, um, is Atlanta. And I'm pretty confident Atlanta is going to go pretty heavily for uh, for Warnock and uh, Ossoff, um, including the suburbs of Atlanta. So m- the money that you could use for media, you know, I, I, I'm sure that the, the Republicans will spend a lot of money in the Atlanta market. I don't think it's going to get them that much. Um, I think there's not so many undecided voters right now there. The, the money on the Dem side, you may not see it being spent um, by the campaigns or on media. And I guess that's what you're saying is that they haven't done that much of that yet. But I think I think a lot of money on the Dem side is going into uh, organizations like um, Stacey Abrams's Fair Fight, which are out there um, registering voters, um, uh, encouraging turnout, and that's kind of independent of the candidate campaigns. And I think that that it, it was really her efforts. It was Stacey Abrams's efforts that won um, uh, Georgia for Biden um, much more than anything the, the Biden campaign did. I think, but that that money wouldn't have shown up as um, expenditures on the on the Biden campaign line. 
So do you think the Democrat I mean, it kind of seems implicit in what you're responding then is, is that it could be possible to turn out Democrats in the same number. Uh, but do you really think sans a presidential candidate on the top that they're going to be as likely to vote in the same number, say, if, again, you have a fired up Republican uh, base who see Trump as having been lost, uh, you know, it stole not lost, but uh, specifically you know, stolen from him. And I mean, what, 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 so what do you mean? You kind of seem to be kind of putting yeah, that I, as an either or, but in some ways it doesn't sound like that to me. So I'm, I'm kind of push on you a little bit there. <laughs> yeah, no, well, I, I think I think it's, it is going to come down to turnout. And actually, I, I agree with your analytics there. It's going to it's going to depend whether the Dems can turn out the same in January as they did in, in uh, November. You know, I don't think either side is going to turn out in exactly the same numbers. But I think, you know, if, I think the, the Republicans are likely to turn out. You know, at a, at a at a at a pretty good proportion of how they turned out in November, and I, and I, I I also agree with you. It's more questionable whether the Dems will, but I don't think it's impossible because um, I, I think for one thing, the fact that Warnock is the candidate, I think is at least on, on one of the two runoffs, is going to be extremely good for turnout because um, you know I think the 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 community in the Dem coalition that is the most at risk of not turning out. Would be um, uh, um, African Americans who are of uh, in lower socioeconomic brackets um, uh, who are not always the most reliable voters, particularly in Atlanta. So if you have you know the African American minister who actually is the minister at the the church where Martin Luther King Jr. was the minister, um, you know you could not get a more prominent um, African American figure um, or or a more beloved um, uh, member of, of that particular community. And so I, I think it will um, be somewhat of because he's one of the two candidates. I think that will be somewhat of a motive for people to turn out. But then the other part, and this is what I was talking about before, is if you're going to try to think about how to spend money to make sure that happens, I think it, it's more important to spend money on individual get out the vote efforts than on things like media advertising. Because I I don't think this is going to be a persuasion based election. It's not going to be about persuading undecided voters which way to vote, I think it's going to be a turnout-based election. And so money that goes into get-out-the-vote efforts um, in communities where there's some question about whether they vote, but there's not as much question about which way they would vote if they vote, um, you know, I think that's going to be the ticket that the, that the Dems are going to have to punch to win this election. I, I think they can do it. I don't think it's a sure thing that they'll do it. I, that's why I don't make a prediction. So a thought and then a question. You had mentioned there you don't think it's going to be a a prediction, a persuasion election is the way you were kind of putting it. But, you know, I would push back in, in a little bit and say, I don't think any election is ever a persuasion election in so much that it really has a whole lot more to do with either aligning yourself with voters or, re- or having voters recognize or be activated on the particular issues. I, I, the idea that, that a campaign sways people's position, I just don't think there's a lot of evidence for that. Empirically, a lot of other things go on. So in short, I don't think that persuasion is is ever actually what happens in an election. I I don't think elections, I I don't think campaigns specifically, maybe be more specific. Campaigns don't change voters' minds. Uh, Campaigns prime voters to activate certain of their issues to come out. Campaigns convince their own to show up to turn out. Uh, but, but I don't think there's there are elections in which you actually see persuasion taking place. I, in other words, I don't think Biden or Trump ever persuaded somebody. And maybe at the most local of elections, you might see a little bit of that effect. Uh, but I, so but, but you, I think on the point where you say here, you don't think that's going to take place. Great. And you're saying never. Did. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I mostly agree with you. I do mostly agree with you, but I. I think there could be um, exceptions. I mean, one, one actually, one thing I've been very interested in this week, um, which which proves your point, it doesn't dispute your point, is um, where I live. Um, in I live on a, a on the east side of Cincinnati in a an area that's traditionally kind of a Republican bastion, and it's a um, uh, chamber of commerce Republican type bastion. It's not a Trumper type bastion. And uh, um, Rob Portman lives in the one neighborhood over from where I live, the U.S. senator, the Republican senator that represents Ohio. And all of these neighborhoods have always voted Republican. And this time they all voted for Biden. Every neighborhood in my part of town voted for Biden. So that might look like an argument for persuasion, right? That might look like, well, here, you know, the appeals from people like John Kasich 
um, for, for Republicans to consider giving um, Biden a chance instead of sending Trump back up, you know, maybe, maybe it was effective. And so I could see that as um, some limited argument for the effectiveness of uh, persuasion. But yet um, Ohio as a whole um, barely budged. Right. It went for Trump about the same uh, in 2020 as in um, uh, 2016. I think it might have even gone up from 8.1 point to 8.2 point uh, margin of victory. Um, and so even though I think you could see what I would consider persuasion happening on a small scale, um, it didn't really happen on a big enough scale to, to turn a state. And I, I do see that as a fairly typical story. And I think that's probably consistent with what you were saying. Now, one other question I wanted to ask you about this before we moved on was, here we are, we're having a runoff, we're talking about, well, what's going to happen in January? And and one thing that we consistently, and I think oftentimes, uh, Ken, it's been you and myself who've gotten these questions from listeners about, well, how do election procedures matter in the number of parties you're going to have in different kind of electoral outcomes? And so one of the things that I have been kind of mulling over myself is, what do you feel about, I mean, I mean, the fact that we're going to have runoff elections, and this is a runoff election, it's going to, it changes the dynamic here, all as a result of no one uh, passing a threshold. Do you think those kinds of rules are useful? What do you think about the fact we're having a runoff election in and of itself? I was a little curious about that from your point of view, again, since we've touched on this a number of times for listeners. Yeah, well, I like um, ranked choice voting like they have in Maine. Um, I think runoff's a little more problematic. Right. So, so both, and, both and so rank get, choice so and runoff. Say is, of yeah, course, yeah. just for the, for the rank order, that's all happening on one day. Because, uh, listeners may or may not know. That, right? day, so right. you'd say, you know, you know, uh, Loeffler is number uh, one and uh, whoever's number two. And so you don't have to have a runoff because they're actually tabulating all of that on the first go through. Yeah, in Maine, the voters get to say who their second choice candidate is. Exactly. Right? So, exactly. so if the if the if 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 neither. If, 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 if no candidate gets a majority of the votes, um, then only the first two candidates are still in it. First, first, first place and second place candidate are still in it. And then for the third, for all other candidates, if they got votes, um, then we look at who the second choice of those voters were and, and those get attributed to the two candidates that are still in it. So it's an instant runoff election. I think that's a good system because I think that, um, uh, it is good to take account of um, who people's second choice would be um, if, if neither, if no candidate gets a majority of the votes. And, and the reasons I think that's good is, I, I, I guess, as Michael mentioned at the beginning of the show, I would like to see the possibility of more parties developing. Um, ranked choice voting gives people a way to vote for third party candidates um, without playing the role of the spoiler because they can, they can vote for a third party candidate, but in the likelihood that the third party candidate doesn't win, um, they can still redirect their vote to the to the Democratic or Republican candidate. Um, and so in the short run, that lets um, third parties build up and, and show strength and, and gives uh, voters confidence that they can vote for them uh, without throwing the um, election to the, to the worst candidate or their least favorite candidate. Um, and it also means the outcomes are going to uh, represent the, the preferences ultimately of the majority of the voters in the state, even if it's just their second choice. Um, now, I think a runoff is designed to do some of those same things, but I think it doesn't do it as well as a ranked choice voting, because, uh, you know, it just means you have to start over. Um, it, it's going to depend a lot on, you know, money, like you were talking about before, because if candidates have spent down all their money during the um, election season up, running up to November, it's going to be about who can draw on even big reserves really quickly to keep campaigning um, for another couple months. Uh, the electorate does change a little bit. Um, you know, maybe I, th- maybe I think it's a good thing that you get some people who turn 18 years old between November and January, but, you know, those people get to join the electorate. Some people are going to die during that time and they're going to, they're going to leave the electorate. Um, so everything's a little different and, um, and it, and it kind of exhausts people and you're probably going to get less turnout. Um, you know, this Georgia one may be a, a, an exception to that, but generally I think if there's a runoff, you're, you know, another big change in the electorate is it's just going to be a much smaller electorate. Not everybody's going to come back and vote. Well, you have an added time. cost. So I don't, yeah, and an added cost. Yeah. So I just think it, it doesn't really, achieve the goals of representativeness that it's designed to achieve. Um, and, and if there's an alternative like a, a ranked choice voting, I think that achieves it a lot better. But I, but I, I do like ranked choice voting, and I like that better than first to the post. So, you know, in some states, candidates could win without getting 50 percent of the vote. Actually, in almost every state, a candidate could win without getting 50 percent of the vote. 
And uh, I don't think that's great either, because it could really mean that the majority of the voters did not want the person who, who won. And so I, I think it is good to have some mechanism to try to work through that. You know, trade. But I wanted to mention I, I won't. Uh, the original question you ask, I, I will. I will not actually duck that question. Like I understand why Ken <laughs> certainly would. But I, I, I fully expect both of the incumbents, both of the Republican senators, to win uh, to win these elections. And I don't think it's going to be as close as a lot of people on the left hope it will be. If uh, this election and really the history of studying elections is taught, I think political scientists anything, it's that incumbents almost always win. We certainly saw that here in 2020, and I, I expect to see that happen. The other thing I wanted to point out is uh, that it's well, it's kind of sad to me, I guess, that both of these Republicans uh, claimed uh, that in the words, their words, the management of Georgia elections has become an embarrassment for the state, and they called for Georgia's Secretary of State to resign, who is, by the way, a Republican. And to me, that is just, just a example number one of, I don't know how many, of how far down that sad and, and frankly disgusting path people are willing to go in, in pursuit of in pursuit of power and holding office and it and it, it just makes me sad and sick. Well, I mean, if you're going to be sad and sick, uh, Mike, we might as well kind of uh, jump into the second story because that's what you're kind of getting at there <laughs> when you talk about, uh, you know, calling on uh, the Republican uh, Secretary of State to resign. Because, of course, Mike Pompeo, the uh, Secretary of State of the United States, mentioned this week and then failed and refused to walk his comments back uh, that, the, that the administration is prepared for an easy transition um, into a Trump second term. And at the same time, as a matter of fact, on Friday, the final projected wins uh, have come in for both Georgia and North Carolina, uh, where Biden has now won Georgia and uh, Trump has won North Carolina, therefore finishing uh, out the Electoral College as of Friday. And but yet we're still having conversations. I mean, last week we had the big uh, everybody on the show, kind of the all hands on deck show, taking a look and analyzing this. And a a week later, we're still dealing with um, law firm uh, Trump's law uh, lawsuits. And in this case, many of them being already rejected. We had prepared for this show uh, to talk about 238 pages of uh, affidavits of uh, GOP poll watchers. Um, but in, in, in both states where they've been filed, these have been pulled away. And so there's a lot of questions as to why. I mean, so we still have clearly a, a set of individuals, Trump at the front, who is not accepting the election results. And this is something that I know, Ken, you and I talked about earlier on. And I I think as I look back and, and I uh, was thinking back to what we had talked about, you actually had a more positive view of this than I did. Uh, you basically said, look, Trump won't go easily into the night, but it's not going to be a crisis. And I'm wondering, do you still stand by that? Yeah, I mean, I do agree with what Michael said, that it's, it's really disgusting and uh, he shouldn't be doing this. But I. I, I don't um, really because of the magnitude of Biden's victory. He he won big. It's probably going to turn out in the end that he won by seven or eight million votes um, in in all of the states, even the close states. He won by thousands of votes. We don't. There's no state as close as, as Florida was in 2000, um, and he's got a few states to spare. Um, that there there is no mechanism available that could stop Biden from taking office on January 20th, and. So for that reason, um, it's more of a sideshow or, or, or a psychological warfare or something than a uh, um, than, than an actual constitutional crisis. But but I, I think it, it could have been a constitutional crisis if this election had been a lot closer and there was a um, some serious uh, uh, lanes that, that Trump could have gone down to try to actually get um, the, the, re- the result re- reversed. But as it is, no, I, I think it's theatrics, and I think it'll be um, uh, you know it'll it'll blow over. Um, uh, you know, not immediately, but it'll, it'll, it'll blow over. It, 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 to the extent that it's toxic and it's, it's infecting the polity, I don't know that it's any different in, in magnitude or in kind than the way he's been running his presidency for the whole four years he's been in there. 
I'm going to say, I like something that one of uh, Donald Trump's former publicists said. He said, it's not about winning the presidency. It's his exit strategy. And I think that's, you know, I think Donald Trump firmly has his eyes on the prize, which is taking care of his outstanding loans and debts and other issues and being able to argue, at least in his mind and to his followers, plausibly, at least in their minds, that this election was stolen from him because he will never he will never say that he lost a fair election. It's not going to happen. And his ability to at least make noises like he might be a potential candidate in 2024. This is all, I think, more than anything else, a business and self-aggrandizement strategy. And it's going to have some pretty negative, I think, ramifications for our country over the next four years. Well, and see, there's actually where some of that separation is, right? So, Mike, you're you're noting that, look, it may not be a constitutional crisis, but effectively, this is still this is still problematic for. Uh, the the Republican the, the lowercase Republican ideal in the United States the Democratic principle Ken you seem to have been a little bit more uh, you don't you don't see that being the case as a matter of fact on the show uh, our all hands on deck show last week you had even kind of argued that up to and including individuals not seeing this as a legitimate that on the popular level that's not really a big issue so I'd like you to talk into that a little bit. Yeah, well, I, first of all, I don't want to say that I have any sympathy for anything Trump is doing. I certainly don't. And in fact, if I was going to um, uh, pile onto the list of motives I think he has here, um, uh, besides the motives we've already discussed, um, I think he is, um, uh, you know, putting money straight into his pocket immediately on this because he's fundraising for these legal fights and he's not actually spending the funds on legal fights. He's just putting the money in his own pocket um, in, in the most straightforward, you know, con man kind of way. Um, He's also, um, by saying that he's going to run in 2024, which he's already talking about, I don't think he will run in 2024, but I, I think he's going to keep saying that right up until 2024 because he can keep fundraising for his campaign. You know, I think after he won the election in 16, right around Inauguration Day in 17, he started his campaign committee for 2020 because then he can raise funds and then he can grift those funds and put them in his own pocket. And I, I think he is planning to do all that. Um, so I, I think his motives are all uh, the, the, the worst. But but what I do think is, you know, we have a president right now, Trump, who's been in there for, for four years. He's had nonstop assaults on the rule of law and on our system of government. And, um, you know, I, I don't see, I, as I said before, I don't see this as going any farther than, than things that he's already done. He, he never really um, uh, um, accepts our institutions. He never uh, follows the norms. He rarely even follows the law, and, except when he's really pushed into it. Um, and, you know, if he can do things like like put children in cages and separate them from their parents or, or send the armed forces um, to break up peaceful protests across the street from the White House and tear gas protesters, um, I, I, I put this in that context and say, you know, what he's doing now, it's just more of the same. It, it's, it doesn't it, 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 I think he's already poisoned a, a segment of the electorate. And, you know, now, you know, he, he's just, you know, doubling down on that. But I don't I don't think it's going over um, to, 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 to affect uh, other segments of the electorate or to expand his base. And I, I think his base is already, you know, pretty likely to, um, you know, kind of stick with him no matter how this ends, really. So the damage is already done. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's he's adding a little bit to it, but I think that's just a um, you know icing on the cake, really. So then, for you, Mike, what you were going to add in here, and I don't want to you know interrupt. So kind of gives you can tell it, but I'd also like to hear. It seems like from from what I've been hearing you like last week and this week is that you think there is in fact maybe some additional damage being done. Uh, yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, right now, when we're talking about this, when all of Washington and all the country is talking about this, what's not happening? There are no negotiations whatsoever on COVID relief. When we have this huge spike, when there's when it's been since the spring, since we've had a package, and Mitch McConnell is arguing in bad faith because he's saying that, oh, well, we put together this $500 billion package. What he's not saying is there's a huge poison pill in it that is, has massive uh, liability protection for business that would essentially allow them to do whatever in the heck they wanted. That's conveniently not being reported. And so while everyone is completely consumed by this issue of power and control, there are millions, tens of millions of Americans who are suffering, continue to suffer. And that, to me, is the thing we're not talking about, that it, that no one's talking about. That is what really matters here. <clears throat> Oh, 
Okay, so it seems like where we're, where we're kind of at here is is that I, uh, Mike, you're kind of saying, look, this is, this is doing additional damage in Kent. I don't know if you exactly disagree, uh, but so much so that you say, look, this kind of damage is nothing new. It's no more. This particular pin prick is no more or less than four yeah. years of continual pin, uh, pin pricks at the rule of yeah, law. Yeah, I, I think you char- you characterize that right, and and I would even say in response to Michael's example. If Trump had somehow won this election, I, I don't think they'd be working on COVID relief now. I mean, they didn't work on it, you know, all substantially all year since the one relief package in March. So I, I just feel like, you know, this that's all an extension of the kind of damage that Trump did in office. And it's it's not um, that different uh, because he lost the election um, than, than if he had won the election. It's just it's just more of the same to me. So I have a a final kind of question related to this front for both of you. And this is is that this over the past couple of weeks, uh, I have had a number of conversations with individuals uh, close and other who are convinced that the election has been stolen. They are just completely unmoored. And I'm just going to be honest from reality Uh, to the point, as a matter of fact, uh, upon listening to the group show, uh, I had a couple of of individuals take particular issue with me for being nothing more, or in their words, as a flaming leftist. I think both of you would disagree highly with me being a flaming leftist. (laughs) 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 Maybe the way I dressed is, I don't know. Anyway, but but be that as it may, here is my serious question about that for you, having had some pretty deep conversations um, with a a number uh, of individuals. Do you think that in two years and then again in four years that we're going to be able to come to a point where elections can once again be seen as stable forces that move the country forward? Or has this election and this kind of gets at the question that you guys were kind of getting at, but the pinpricks or has the amount of uh, Democratic undermining? poisoned it to the point where that is not likely to be changed, at least in the medium term. What do you guys think about that? Is, is, there, a, is there a way forward there? Do you see in two years having an election without wild, outlandish, ungrounded claims? Uh, or do we see this is just going to be, you know, it'll be more, even bigger next time? Um, well, I'll answer that one first, if that's okay with Michael. Yes, yeah, so I, I think the, the midterm elections... It's not going to be as bad as in the presidential elections because if you really, I mean, people can 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 make up phony claims in, in any election, but I think the the toxicity of the of of, of the of the past few weeks is because the president of the United States, who has a bully pulpit, he's got the media reporting everything that he says, and there's a, a lot of lawyers, and he's even brought to bear in part the, the Justice Department um, as well as all these private lawyers. Um, that, that um, if he acts like that uh, in, in his own election, it really gets a lot of legs in the popular mind, in the public consciousness. Um, now, in a midterm election, you know, all the elections are essentially local. The, the biggest election will be for U.S. senators um, in, in a single state. And I just don't think that they're going to um, get that kind of uh, traction um, if they complain about fraud or anything like that. And also, um, other than a presidential election, you know, there, there's not going to be that many situations where um, there's going to be big surprises about the outcomes either. You know, that we really didn't know who was going to win the presidential election, but of the 33 Senate seats that are going to be up for grabs in 2002, you know, we probably already know right now today um, who's, which party is going to win about um, 26 or 27 of those. Um, so the, the, the playing field is going to be a little bit smaller in terms of um, where, how the grievances might, might be uh, um, e- expressed. Yeah, I, I I agree with Ken on that. I mean, Donald, people, I think a lot of people think that, well, Donald Trump has laid the template for this and, and future, you know, future politicians, presidential aspirants will just copy that. But I don't think they appreciate sort of what a natural, what a magnificent talent for the big lie Donald Trump has. And that's not something that you can just create. It's going to sound inauthentic if someone doesn't have that sort of that sort of lying, that sort of just complete disregard for the truth in their bones like Donald Trump does. So I don't I, I think that's actually good in that sense, because Donald Trump, I believe, is a unique individual, or largely unique. 
somewhat of an outlier, though certainly if you take a look at longer-term trends in trust for government institutions and for institutions in general, aside from the military, it's, it, it looks pretty bleak really since the 1960s, 1970s, and I don't see that longer-term trend changing. I don't see social media changing in any meaningful way, and so even though Donald Trump might have represented a temporarily low point, I see the, the trajectory being pretty much downward as far as I can tell. Okay. Well, why don't we change gears a little bit? And this maybe kind of comes back to what you had wanted to focus on, Mike, was maybe some of the things that we're not paying attention to as a result of all the maturations for power. Because this week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in California v. Texas. Uh, That happened this past Tuesday, uh, where once again, the Affordable Health Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, although I'm not a big fan of that, uh, is coming back to the court. And what was kind of weird, and I'm curious to kind of hear your take to start with this on, Ken, was that we saw that Roberts is joined by Kavanaugh, who uncharacteristically kind of uh, showed that he was willing to potentially consider this constitutional. Uh, So what do you think about the the future future of ACA, California v. Texas, and specifically because uh, uh, Jay can't push back on you, do you think the fact that we see Kavanaugh willing to come across the aisle, that it might uh, be a little bit of evidence uh, against on the big, as you'd put it on the weekend show, that that on the big cases, conservatives always vote uh, the party line? Well, you know, the... the, um First of all, I don't think Kavanaugh is going to rule that ACA is constitutional. I think he actually is going to rule that the individual mandate, which previously had been held to be constitutional in the Sebelius case a few years ago, um, has become unconstitutional uh, because the tax was reduced to zero dollars. Um, so I think on the constitutional holding, uh, Kavanaugh is going to vote the conservative party line. And, and I would add, I think that's a frivolous uh, view. So I, I think the only reason that um, it will command a majority, I think that really is, is support, support for my thesis that they, they just vote on partisan interest. Um, but on the separate question that's in the case, um, not the constitutional question, but the statutory question, um, which is sometimes called severability, this is a question about um, if, if, if one part of a statute is constitutional, does the Supreme Court strike down the whole statute um, or does it only um, strike down the unconstitutional part? And keep the uh, um, the rest of the statute intact. Um, I think after Kavanaugh rules that the mandate is now unconstitutional, um, it does seem likely that he will um, vote with Roberts and with the and with the liberal justices to say, but that unconstitutional part is severable um, from the, the the rest of the statute. Now, one reason for that is that Kavanaugh himself um, just last year. Um, uh, in a case called Barr versus American Association of Political Consultants, um, and, and actually um, Roberts in a case called Celia Law versus the Consumer Financial Protection Board, both of them have very recent opinions where they've each very strongly written on the idea of severability and the idea that um, there's a strong presumption of severability, that it should almost always be the case that um, if one part of a statute is unconstitutional, um, the rest of the statute should still stand. And so I think the, the, the recent and strong opinions that both of those two justices wrote in other contexts do somewhat lock them in um, to, uh, um, uh, um, you know, not completely ignoring what they themselves wrote just, just last term. Um, the other thing is I think that um, the, the, the court may be a little bit concerned right now about um, a lot of the political um, will on the Democratic side in, 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 in Congress um, to, to, for court reform. And I think even though um, it, it may be the case that um, the Republicans will keep the Senate and so that won't happen right now, um, I think as, as long as that remains um, part of the Democratic agenda, there's always the risk that it will happen. And, you know, perhaps in 2022, the Dems will finally get the Senate. And, uh, um, and so fresh provocations that are going to um, not just be known in the legal community, but that are going to be known to the entire American electorate, um, like striking down the Affordable Care Act and immediately throwing 20 million people off their health insurance. Um, I think that would really give quite a lot of fuel to make uh, the, the, the court expansion or other forms of court reform um, much better accepted among Democrats and, and, and much less controversial among Democrats so that we would then not be talking about whether that's something that Democrats would do or not, 
but we'd just be talking about, well, whenever, when, when are we going to be in a position to do it? So I think there may be some sentiment on the, on the part of Justice Kavanaugh as well as Chief Justice Roberts to head off something like that. Hmm. Well, I want to get in there. And you know, s- oh, sorry, go I ahead. S- you first, Mike. No, I was, I was going to ask. I wanted to ask Ken a question because to me, and maybe this is getting a little bit into the weeds, but to me, the severability question was an easy one. And I, I'm, I fully expected there to be six votes for that, if not more. But it, it, based on how the argument went down. What what to me seemed really interesting was the standing question, because at one point, Justice Chief Justice Roberts said, well, let's say Congress passes a law saying everyone has to mow the lawn once a week, but there's no fine for it. Does anyone have standing to challenge it? Because, of course, to have standing, you're supposed to be affected in some way. And if I understand correctly, the Trump administration's argument for standing in this case uh, is that it is, is pretty broad. And I know both Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kagan said, wow, if we accept and we're going to give all kinds of people the sort of standing that they never had in this. And so, Ken, I was just wondering, uh, I, was, I was curious about your take on the standing argument and, and the possibility that the court might just not even rule on that and just say that the, uh, the, the plaintiffs don't have standing here. Well, yeah, it's not a coincidence that Roberts and Kagan were the justices who were pushing that um, argument. I think both, both of those two, for, for actually for overlapping reasons, although they're in opposite parties, um, would really like this case to just go away, right? If the case goes away, then Obamacare is still constitutional, and uh, um, and and yet there's not um, uh, as much of a um, a controversy about the reasoning and the decision because the reasoning and the decision would never reach the merits of of, of of any of the questions that people are ideological about. So, standing doctrine as a whole is is very much um, uh, squishy and manipulable. The court uses it to duck deciding cases if it wants to duck deciding those cases. The court decides cases if it wants to decide the cases. There's really no rules um, of standing that can be um, uh, universally applied. It's, it's always very fact-based. Um, and um, and so I think that is, you know, like a lot of my analysis of the current court, I'd say that really depends on the politics of the current court. If there's, if there's enough justices on the court who think um, it's better to just leave well enough alone, um, then you may find the case dismissed on standing grounds. However, I'm not really sure that that um, that, that, that consensus will be there. Um, I, I think there, there may be um, at least five justices on the court who would like to actually make the um, uh, ruling that the mandate is now unconstitutional. And if they make that ruling, um, then they will have to get into the severability question. But there, I think they will probably sever it from the rest of the act. But I'm curious, just as your legal opinion, just in the facts of this, with, with the facts of this case, do you think that the, that there actually is standing here or, or not? Yeah, I mean, I, I I have to answer that two ways. One is I don't, I don't think that that question is um, – I don't think there's such a thing as an objective answer to that question. I think standing is a phony doctrine. Right, that it, it's actually. Well, you can't used. tell my students that because they're about to take yeah. a final exam, <laughs> yeah. and just, you know, standing is one. <laughs> right. I, well, you know, I, I, I do tell my students that, even though they have to take a final exam. But exactly what I tell them that when I teach them that in law school is, on the exam, you can't tell me that it's a phony doctrine and that that's that's going to be your answer. On the exam, uh, because it is a phony doctrine, you have to actually be able to make arguments on both sides of every standing question. Because there are arguments on both sides of every standing question. So there, there's no standing question where you just say, well, there is or isn't standing. Every standing question, um, whichever side hires you, you should be able to make the standing argument if you're a lawyer because it's, it's too squishy of a doctrine. So, um, so that's my true answer. But um, I guess if you were going to actually apply the, 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 um, the formalities of the test, which is what Michael sort of asked about. Um, so the rules are um, for, 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 a, for a plaintiff to have standing – uh, they have to have suffered a particularized injury, in fact. Um, the um, injury has to have been proximately caused by the defendant, um, and the uh, injury has to be judicially redressable. So those are the, those are the formal components of the test for standing. So here, I guess, what the um, uh, plaintiffs would be arguing is that the, um, the injury, in, in fact, that they've suffered is that um, even if they're not going to have to pay a tax for not buying health insurance, that they would still be in violation of law um, for not buying health insurance because the, the relevant provisions say that they, they must buy health insurance. And so um, so that the injury would be that they would have to be a lawbreaker and that they, they don't want to be lawbreakers, um, uh, even if there's no penalty for breaking that law. And I think that's the form of argument that they'd make, and I think that's precisely the form of argument where if you're going to judge whether that's valid or not, 
It's just gonna, it's just going to go by whether you want to whether you want to take the case or not. You know, I, I don't think there's any oh. you know, I don't think there's any bottom line answer to that question. I think that's going to be decided based on the the, the inclination Can of I, the judges to take the case or not. And I was going to throw out one more question. I know we're running out of time, so just you know, you can address this more quickly. Are there other examples where you have laws without inf- uh, without penalty? So, for example, you know, in 2017 is when Congress effectively lowers the penalty for noncompliance to zero dollars, allowing for viewer analysis there where right you're saying, well, you could be in violation of law, even though you know, there's no fine possible. Are there other examples of that? Because. It, that does not appear to be a normal situation uh, from my point of view as a political scientist, but I was curious about from yours as a lawyer. Well, I think there are, but um, what I would think this is most analogous to is something like, um, you know, there's there's uh, there's laws that um, say, you know, um, today uh, the name post offices or something. Right. So Congress passes a law and it says, you know, the post office in my neighborhood will now be the Pete Rose post office. The courthouse in my neighborhood will now be the Potter Stewart courthouse. You know, those are laws that are actually valid. They have legal effect. They name these buildings. Um, they, 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 they don't have any enforceability provisions. It wouldn't be really possible to violate those laws. Um, so I'd sort of lump this in with that kind of law. Um, now, that gets to a deeper question, which might be what you're getting at, which is, but isn't this different because this is regulating conduct, and those, those kinds of laws right. are not regulating conduct. But I would say, no, this law is not regulating conduct either. So I, I think, you know, the, the, the concept that there's no um, uh, um, enforcement mechanism, to me, just puts it in the kind of category of laws that don't actually regulate conduct. But there's, there's nothing unconstitutional or even uncommon about, about laws that don't regulate conduct. You know, Justice mm-hmm. Thomas brought up, the, brought up the example in oral argument about mask mandates, suggesting that that was the sort of a similar type of thing, at least right. based on my, my review of that, saying that, you know, even though there's no penalty, it regulates conduct and you're looked down upon if you violate that law. And there are plenty of mask mandates that don't actually have penalties attached to them. Yeah, well, gentlemen, I, mean, most I think of those come from state oh, sorry. Local. Okay, I just say most of those come from state and local governments and the, that makes a huge difference from a constitutional standpoint because the, the very argument about why this mandate would now be unconstitutional would be that Congress um, lacks an enumerated power to enact it. So the, the argument would be that it was a tax and therefore had been enacted under Congress's taxing power. And now that it's not a tax anymore, it can't be um, an exercise of Congress's taxing power. You really wouldn't get into that question with state and local regulations because they don't need to have an enumerated power to, to enact state or local regulations. Hmm. Well, now, Mike, I know that uh, you're with us today, so feel free to jump in on our last bit here. Uh, But if you don't, I understand as well. But we always go through what we've been reading or consuming this week. Uh, And, uh, Ken, I know that you always have something uh, unique and interesting on the red front. I'm going to go a different direction this week with the reading because it's not exactly a reading. So I'm going (laughs) to yeah, consuming might be the word. Uh, But I'm going to recommend right now in November, there is an app that is uh, normally a subscription app. It's called Balance, and it's free for the entire year. And it's a meditation app. Uh, for me, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I had recommended uh, Richard Foster's book on prayer because I've been trying to kind of focus this semester in my own life on kind of some uh, different kinds of disciplines. And one of the ones that I have attempted in my life be part of, in addition to prayer, has been meditation. And a lot of time these meditation apps are kind of just, I don't know, they're wonky. <laughs> I, anyway, they're crazy things. But I have to say that this, uh, the balance app is this really cool. It is, um, pinned to, uh, you know, the things you're actually doing. Um, and I, I have really loved the way it's kind of giving me a moment, especially in the evenings when I'm kind of winding down for bed. So since it's completely free, uh, I'm going to suggest uh, if you're interested in kind of engaging in mindfulness uh, and you're not sure where to start the balance app. Uh, and so, uh, Ken, what, what, what have you been consuming uh, this week? So this will be a little more political than usual, I guess. But uh, I watched on Netflix the the new movie that's out about the trial of the Chicago 7. It's a new um, Aaron Sorkin movie, and Sacha Baron Cohen plays uh, Abby Hoffman. And uh, I liked the movie, and so after I watched that, I realized that one of the Chicago 7, Jerry Rubin, uh, who was one of the founders of the Yippies, um, he grew up, uh, was born and raised here in Cincinnati, and he actually went to the same high school that my kids went to. 
And so I decided to go to the public library and grab uh, the two books that he wrote, uh, Do It and uh, Growing Up at 37. And I, I was just, they're both very fast reads. So I was reading these Jerry Rubin books this week and enjoying the references <laughs> to Walnut Hills High School in Cincinnati. Oh, <laughs> now, Mike, we're not going to, you know, I you're not one. on the hook no, for I've this because you're the third I've wheel. There is, okay. there is a book that I am just completely sucked into. I've been, I've been loving it. It's a, uh, it's a tome. It's over 800 pages, but it's, it's the best book I've read in a long time. It's called The Enchantments of Mammon, How Capitalism Became the Religion of Modernity. And if if you're the kind of person who is not totally turned off by that title, it's probably going to be a book you're going to absolutely love. And it is just it's, – it's a fantastic book going back from from the – really from the 16th century all the way to the present talking about how capitalism didn't disenchant the world as as, uh, as Max Weber argued, but actually capitalism is just another form of enchantment. It's its own religion, its own faith and belief system, and it is powerful stuff, wonderfully written, and I, am, I might just have to force this book on a lot of people because it is just brilliant. I'm pretty psyched up about this book. Yeah. Now, when you say force, does that mean like, I'm, am I hearing a 4,000 level class somewhere? <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be surprised at some point. Yeah. Well, Ken, Michael has been wonderful doing the show uh, with both of you, which is a fun, uh, a fun, different way to do it. Yeah, this was fun. Well, I want to thank all of you for listening to the politics guys, uh, all of the hosts, myself deeply included. I really do love working on the show. Uh, and I want to let you guys know that one of the ways you can help it, as Michael talked about at the beginning, was subscribing to the Poli- uh, politics guys on the podcast app of your choice. So does sharing episodes like this one. That's a big deal. But also certainly. We need your support. And one of the great things about being a supporter is you're going to get access to supporters only content. And that includes a full bonus show on Wednesday, this time from not only myself and Ken, but also from Mike. So the whole trio of us here. So if you're interested in this trio show, I really encourage you to become a supporter. Uh, And if you would like to do that, you can head to politicsguys.com slash support, or you can head to patreon.com slash politics guys. And as Mike always notes, please remember if you cannot afford that, you can reach out to Mike at politicsguys.com uh, and, and he can hook you up there. Uh, additionally, don't forget, we now have our only for supporters discord channel, and we'd love for you to come visit with us. If you get a chance uh, again, please join us again for our midweek show by becoming a supporter by heading to patreon.com slash politics guys. The executive producers of the politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Morano, Andra Masker, Nathan Sosnowski, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. I hope you'll join us then.